and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Courtney Lawler, James and Mary Lassiter Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. We will discuss her article, Reviving Criminal Equity, which will be published in the Alabama Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on Ipsy Dixie with you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. And it was fun to reread this paper, which I think is really interesting and hopefully um, has an important impact on how courts think about applying the, the criminal law. Uh, but, but I was wondering if you could start by... Um, by just sort of sketching out for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of of equity by talking just a little bit about sort of what it is, what it means, and the role that equity historically had in the criminal law. It's a great place to start. Um, so I think for those of us who went to law school, um, we have some recollection at some point of hearing something about courts of law and courts of equity. Um, and perhaps many of my colleagues were more in tune to this distinction at the time than I was. <laughs> um, um, but for me, it was just something I remember sort of hearing about, hearing essentially that with the passage of the federal rules of civil procedure, law and equity merged kind of end of story, right? There's really wasn't much more that I remember hearing about equity and certainly Equity as a concept, um, other than in just the general sense of how we think of the word in, in everyday usage, um, didn't come up in the context of criminal law and criminal procedure. Um, and so I actually started thinking about this piece from a couple of different things that had happened for me. One was being on a great remedies um, panel every year at the SEALs conference in August, um, and so that got me thinking about equity because most of the the remedy scholars are civil law scholars and are not criminal. They're not thinking about um, um, remedies in the context of criminal law. And most of the people who think about remedies in the context of criminal law really are thinking about sentencing most of the time. Although there's um, obviously a, an increasing literature in the context of fines and fees more broadly. Um, so that was where the the seed was initially planted, and then. Um, Fred Smith had a great article in the Harvard Law Review called Abstention in the Time of Ferguson that got me thinking further about equity. Um, and so when I started to do a little bit of digging, one of the things that I learned is that there was a reason I never heard equity talked about in the context of criminal law or criminal procedure. Um, so equity's roots were really from ancient Greek and Roman philosophers way back in the day. Um, and they, they viewed equity as a method of judging um, that would, would take up, um, in the words of, of Martha Nussbaum, who is a legal philosopher, a gentle and lenient cast of mind toward human wrongdoing. Um, so equity was conceived as something um, that would correct or complement strict legal justice, right? So if the law and legal procedures and rules um, didn't adequately seem to address a wrong that had been committed, um, then equity came in to kind of act as a corrective on that, to say, look, we don't think the result here is right under the laws. And so therefore, there's this mechanism of being able to kind of fix that. Um, and, and that, you know, broadly speaking, that's sort of where equity arose from, from that philosophical viewpoint. Um, 
And the early courts of equity back in England um, started with this conception of equity. But as you might already have guessed, if you um, spend much time with legal stuff, um, the, the idea that somebody could could say, well, I think I think in this particular instance, my conscience thinks that this is not really the right result, um, leaves a lot to whoever the 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 judicial bodies, um, whoever that person is, to their discretion, right? Um, leaves a lot up to what their perception of things. Um, and so over time, you know, the English chancellors who had initially had what they called chancery courts, which kind of adopted the the um, the, their equity courts, basically. Um, so over time, those courts evolved from viewing equity in the way that the philosophers had initially conceived of it um, and, and sort of tried to make it more predictable in the way that law was, right? To look at things like precedent um, and to make the rules that governed one court of equity similar to what would govern in another court of equity so that it wasn't entirely dependent on whoever... Um, the the equity court of the chancellor was in that particular jurisdiction. So try um, and make there be some routine and some predictability in it. Um, as a result, ultimately, you know, this is, we're still talking back in the 16 and 1700s here, um, but ultimately um, courts of equity became much more parallel to, to courts of law in a sense. I mean, they still were viewed as being um, complements to to courts of law, right? With with the rule of law being ultimately what prevailed most of the time, right? But but equity would come in 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 the instances in which law did not adequately address um, whatever it was that was going on, the situation that was going on. So in in your paper, you make a distinction that I think is relevant specifically to thinking about equity in a criminal law context between between equity and and mercy. Now, I was wondering if you could kind of just briefly elaborate on that distinction and why it might be important in terms of thinking about the sort of specific meaning of equity in that context. Yeah, I think that's a, that is an important distinction to make. Um, and I actually, um, Andrea Roth, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, has a great way of explaining that distinction that I think really captures it. Um, so she says, unlike equity, which is a necessary part of rendering over-inclusive laws just, mercy is leniency granted by the grace of private persons beyond what justice alone demands or even allows, right? So the idea is that Equity is a necessary complement to law. When there's some type of, of legal process, equity comes in to balance um, where there's not something else that adequately addresses the problem going on. Mercy goes a step beyond that. And mercy says, even if there is something adequately um, provided by in the law, there's a cast of mercy, a cast of leniency that goes beyond just equity in terms of balancing. And so I want to be clear in, in, in this paper and in the one that I'm working on currently, that when I talk about equity, I mean equity, at least in this current paper, in that, in that more um, narrow and circumscribed sense, not in the broader sense of equity um, as mercy, which I think mercy then becomes a completely different concept. So I, I can understand why we might have wanted to see this kind of formalization of equity and 
reduction uh, in the discretionary element of the judicial kind of powers in a civil law context where we've got two private parties in uh, litigation against each other, kind of looking, needing predictability, you know, and so now I think we normally think of of equity in relation to law primarily as a question, as you said earlier, of of remedies. In other words, how are we going to fix whatever the problem is less than in terms of what the substantive outcome of the the decision is going to be. And yet, you know, in a criminal context, we've just got a criminal defendant on one side and the state on the other. So it seems like there might be more room for for that kind of discretion to play an important role given that, you know, we don't have the interest of two competing private parties. And yet you say in the paper, and this is certainly consistent with my understanding going into reading the paper, that equity generally isn't thought of as being really a meaningful part of the criminal law today. Why is that? So the idea of equity as um, as a complement to law meant that if the general sense was that legal procedures and legal remedies adequately addressed whatever the wrong was, then you didn't ever get to equity, right? And that still remains the case. You don't ever look to equitable remedies, really, unless you have first sort of started with the legal remedies. Um, And there became a consensus, um, certainly by the time equity came over to the United States at its founding, um, that equity had no business in the criminal law. Um, I'm still kind of looking into trying to parse out why. There are different theories as to why that is. Um, But but the ultimate result was that that by the time equity became, you know, incorporated into portions of the Constitution and into state and federal systems um, here in the U.S., you know, Almost never was was equity seen as being something that would be a remedy in, in, in a criminal case. There were exceptions. I mean, you can see still the one thing I think that has, has remained consistent throughout, although it's morphed in terms of how it's applied, um, you do see restitution as a remedy in criminal cases, you know, and, and I always give the example of, you know, if somebody stole my watch, historically restitution in a criminal case, you would ask for the, the watch to be returned or the value of the watch. Um, again, restitution in criminal cases, I think, has evolved into something else now most of the time. I mean, there still is restitution in that kind of sense um, in terms of disgorgement of unlawful gain in criminal cases. But with that exception, you know, courts really felt like, you know, this was something they needed to stay out of. Um, and so that that was historically how, how um, equity was viewed in the criminal system. It just wasn't a part of it. And then I think as, once 1937 hit and the... And the um, Federal rules of civil procedure were seen as merging law and equity in the civil context. Any kind of conversation about whether equity should or might apply in the criminal context um, seems to have become non-existent. I mean, there, there's really there was some scholarship early in the 20th century talking about some context, some very narrow context in which equity might apply in criminal cases, and that seems very quickly to have. Um, become curtailed after after the rules of civil procedure came into existence. So so I have to say I I did find it a little peculiar that the rules of civil procedure would be seen as having an effect on how equity would play a role in the criminal law given that it kind of on its face purports to deal with something 
very, very different. Um, but, but in addition, in the paper, I thought it was really interesting the way you pointed out kind of ways in which equity and equity principles have survived, at least in an attenuated form in a criminal law context. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of areas in which criminal defendants and other parties in the criminal justice system at least try to invoke uh, equitable principles and when and why they're successful or unsuccessful. Yeah, so that's been the really interesting thing, actually, about this uh, research that I've been doing, is that, that it became pretty quickly clear to me that despite this narrative we have about equity not playing into criminal cases, at least in recent years, and, and really, you know, in some instances, you know, over the last, you know, probably half century or so, um, equity has been used as a remedy in criminal cases. Um, and I think it's been, it's very interesting to, to look at that. And I think we really need to know that that's going on. And, and courts need to, to be aware of it because it provides them an avenue often um, to give relief in cases where it may not be readily apparent um, from the statutes that are provided, for example. Um, and, and parties need to be aware of it in terms of arguments that they could be making. Um, you know, so there have been two, recently two um, organizations who've been doing tremendous work actually using equitable remedies to um, affect what's happening in a criminal case, sometimes in an individual criminal case and sometimes more systemically. Um, and, and, and the two organizations are the Civil Rights Corps and the Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, and a lot of the litigation that has gone on um, I mentioned earlier there's litigation related to fines and fees has been in that context, has been either in the context of bail conditions or in the context of um, um, fines and fees that have been implemented or conditions of probation um, where private probation companies have been imposing um, conditions and then jailing someone for not being able to afford to pay for those conditions that the court never ordered. Um, so in the context of bail uh, conditions, um, there have been some successful recent litigation in which um, plaintiffs have sought injunctions, right? That's a classic equitable remedy, but they've been seeking injunctions to prevent um, the, the system of bail from being implemented in the way it is. So just as an example, um, there's a woman named Miranda O'Donnell who joined in a class action suit against Harris County, Texas, um, in a case that was litigated in, in 2017, 2018. And she and the other plaintiffs alleged that the county's bail system for indigent misdemeanor arrestees violated the Constitution, um, but the Texas Constitution and the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and an injunction was hearing, uh, was uh, issued after a hearing that will, that lasted over eight days. Um, and, and what the court concluded was that they the, the lower courts were not adequately determining whether somebody had the ability to pay bail. And so they were allowing people to be detained without conducting the proper hearings to determine whether some, somebody could be um, paying the amount that would allow for there to be released. Um, because if those conditions weren't there, then generally speaking under the law, somebody shouldn't be detained um, with a financial condition unless they are a flight risk or a danger to the community or some combination thereof. Um, I'm, I'm sort of broadly summarizing there because that's different state laws have different, different um, rules related to bail, but that's, that tends to be the commonalities that we see. 
Um, and so federal courts and state courts in various jurisdictions have been issuing injunctions um, to to prevent the bail conditions and the, the terminations of bail that are being made um, from proceeding in the way that they're proceeding because they have found that, that the lower courts are acting unconstitutionally. So why in particular would equitable remedies be more important or more valuable in that kind of context than a more kind of individuated um, remedy related to the particular defendant? Oftentimes in bail context, so there's a lot of literature about bail. Um, and so the statistics, and I don't have them all in front of me, but but generally speaking, somebody who is detained pretrial um, is going to have a greater likelihood of, of having a conviction, a greater likelihood of getting a longer sentence. And we see racial disparities, particularly in terms of who's detained pretrial and who is released pretrial. Um, and so it's concerning that there is a system um, that seems to be, that these issues seem to be happening on a systemic level, not just an individual level. Um, and so you can try to challenge them in an individual case, but, you know, a judge, any individual judge may think, well, this particular case is not that compelling. Um, but when you see the, the system that's going on and that numerous defendants um, are being detained um, and, uh, based on having a, a condition of bail set that they're unable to pay, they don't have the ability to pay, um, that becomes a greater problem that needs a systemic response, I think, um, rather than just any individual person being able to sue. Um, and I'm kind of avoiding getting into sort of younger abstention doctrine and all of that uh, um, because it's a longer conversation. But I will say that most of the time, the courts that have have granted the injunctions have found that younger abstention didn't apply in these situations because this is a different issue than the litigation of the issues in the case, right? This is specifically, is that person detained pretrial or not, which is a discrete issue. Maybe you could talk about younger abstention just a little bit because it seemed to me that it was significantly limiting the context in which in which criminal defendants are able to sort of pursue equitable remedies and sort of courts ability to grant equitable remedies when they might otherwise be inclined to do so am i right in understanding it in that way in the context of injunctions absolutely absolutely so um well i guess more broadly than that actually <laughs> um so just to, again, by way of backdrop, um, prior, there's a case in 1908 called Ex Parte Young. It's a Supreme Court case. And in that case, um, the Supreme Court held that individuals who as officers of the state are clothed with some duty in regard to the enforcement of laws of that state and who threaten or are about to commence proceedings, including criminal proceedings, to enforce against parties affecting an unconstitutional act can be enjoined by a federal court of equity from such action. And so pursuant to Ex Parte Young, somebody in this kind of situation, or, or frankly, somebody who thought that they were being illegally prosecuted, right, um, could seek relief in federal courts from state prosecutions. And that was generally the law of the land until Younger versus Harris came down um, in 1971. And that was the first of a series of cases that culminated in a case called Rizzo versus Good um, in 1979, which ended up pretty much precluding that kind of equitable relief in criminal cases. Um, so after Younger, a federal court can only enjoin a state criminal prosecution if there is no prosecution pending 
uh, in the state court at the time that the federal prosecution has begun, if there is a great and immediate irreparable injury that will result if the federal court doesn't issue the injunction, and if the plaintiff's federally protected rights cannot be eliminated by his defense against a single criminal prosecution. Mm. And then there has been an additional kind of bad faith element um, that has also been read in generally by the courts as well. Right. So my understanding then would be that younger exemption would basically make it impossible to for criminal defendants to sort of seek federal relief so long as they're sort of currently before uh, a state court in some sort of proceeding. Why doesn't that apply in like the bail context? And what other context might there be in which equitable remedies are like a potentiality despite younger? So the, the courts that have found younger not to apply in the bail context have said basically that the, the injunction that's being sought related to pretrial detention is not directed at the state prosecution as such, right? Only toward the legality or illegality of the pretrial detention without a judicial hearing or without adequate protections, right, under the Constitution. Um, And that's not an issue that can be resolved with the criminal prosecution. It's a distinct issue from the criminal prosecution, which thereby places it outside of Younger. Um, And I think that that logic makes sense. We first saw it in a case called Gerstein versus Pew, um, which uh, was a, a, a case from 1975. And we've continued to see the lower courts in many cases holding that. But you're absolutely correct. There are also lower courts who have said, Younger applies. This is not not, um, something we are in a position to remedy. We cannot apply equity in this case. So it has been applied both ways. Um, And again, I think Fred Smith has some very strong arguments about why Younger abstention um, should not preclude this type of litigation. There has been other situations in which um, plaintiffs, i.e. criminal defendants, have sought um, equitable relief in the injunction context um, where they have been less successful than they they have been in terms of the bail context. So um, in terms of legal financial obligations, there have been a couple of cases out of Louisiana in which... um, plaintiffs have challenged kind of two different aspects. One is just the uh, inordinate amount of financial fees and obligations that they are um, given at sentencing in a criminal case um, to say, look, this is problematic. We don't have the ability to pay these. And the separate issue that has come up, um, but tends to keep coming up, is that those fines and fees are being used to basically run the criminal justice system, to pay for public defender's offices, to pay the court budget, to pay the prosecutors. And so to say, look, you know, particularly when it comes to paying one's own lawyer, and that there's an incentive um, in some of the Louisiana jurisdictions, there's the, the pay to the public defender only occurs if the defendant pleads guilty or is found guilty. So if the person is acquitted or doesn't, you know, doesn't take a guilty plea and, and, and is found innocent in some other you know, way because the case doesn't go forward, for example, um, um, then the public defender doesn't, public defender's office doesn't get paid. Um, and so to say, look, there's kind of inherent conflict of interest in that kind of system when you're basically encouraging the public defender uh, to, to seek guilty pleas from their clients so that they can mm. get more income into, to, you know, historically underfunded offices. Um, and so injunctions have been sought in those kind of contexts out of, out of, out of Louisiana primarily. Um, and generally speaking, those have not been successful. Um, 
Um, there have been other contexts in which they have been sought as well. Um, also in Louisiana, but, but in Georgia as well, um, defendants and, and actually victims and witnesses have sought injunctions against prosecutors offices because the prosecutors offices have been, uh, have come up with ways to incarcerate and fine victims and witnesses who have chosen not to participate in the prosecution. Um, one of those cases is currently pending in another case in, out of Columbus, Georgia. Um, Columbus ultimately changed their law uh, in order to basically resolve uh, the issue of whether an injunction ever needed to issue in the first place, right? So they kind of mooted the issue by changing the law and changing their practices. But um, you know, there, there are numerous, numerous contexts, in the, in the, particularly in the fines and fees context, in which um, injunctions have been sought and sometimes more successfully than others based on Younger. Yeah. So, so you you also uh, observe that in in some contexts, criminal defendants have sought and obtained forms of equitable re- relief in relation to plea bargains and and, re- and representation as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those circumstances, sort of how they've worked, and why courts have looked to equity in order to remedy them. Sure. So obviously injunctions are trying to prevent harm on the front end to sort of stop a party from acting in a manner that causes a particular harm. Um, Most of the equitable remedies that come up um, actually are are trying to either establish or recover an existing right to remedy that situation where they want to say, look, I have this right and I'm not being granted this right um, or, you know, to recover a right that's there. And so specific performance is one of the contexts in which that's come up. Um, and again, the first big case we see in which the court was looking at specific performance of a rem- as a remedy in a criminal case is a case called Santabella versus New York, um, which many people learn about in their uh, criminal procedure or two classes. Um, and it's a it's a 1971 case involving you know basically an agreement between a defendant and a prosecutor, um, where the prosecutor said, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make no recommendation as to the sentence when it comes to sentencing." So Mr. Santabello, in in reliance on that, entered a guilty plea, and the court set a date for sentencing. Due to numerous things that happened, um, by the time the sentencing took place, about seven months had passed. Mr. Santabello had a new lawyer. The prosecutor was a different prosecutor, and there was a new judge. And the new prosecutor made a recommendation for the maximum sentence. Um, defense counsel objected, so that's not the agreement we had. First prosecutor had agreed. Uh, not to make any recommendation as to sentencing. Um, and so the court ended up saying, look, you know, that's not okay, right? If, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of basic contract law in some ways, right? If somebody relies on the promise that's been made, you have to, to maintain that representation. Um, the, the interesting issue and the issue that's still sort of playing out relates to what you said, right? It relates to specific performance as the remedy. And so really it's the equitable remedy that's, that's kind of key here. Um, you know, in this particular case in Santabello, the court said, look, there are two possible remedies sort of available in this kind of situation where there's a breach. Um, you know, you could have specific performance of the plea agreement in front of a different sentencing judge, or maybe Santabello could just withdraw his, his guilty plea, which is what he was requesting. And so the Supreme Court remanded it down to the lower court to make that call about what the proper remedy would be in that situation. And the lower court ended up ordering specific performance, saying Santabella's plea was entered into voluntarily. Um, and so the defendant, you know, 
had the assistance of counsel of his choice, entered into this voluntary plea, um, and so therefore specific performance is appropriate in this case. Um, fast forward 40 years to, to Lafler versus Cooper, which is a, a Supreme Court case that came out um, in 2012. And so it's the next sort of major specific performance case in the context of plea bargains that the court really considered. Um, and the, the context was different because in this case, the allegation wasn't a government breach. The allegation was ineffective uh, assistance of counsel because essentially um, counsel encouraged the defendant to go to trial rather than communicating effectively a substantially better plea agreement for uh, the defendant. Um, and in this case, uh, counsel erroneously told Mr. Laffler that he could not be convicted of assault with intent to murder because he shot the complainant below the waist rather than above the waist. And so therefore he should go to trial um, because he was likely to get acquitted, which did not happen. And he ended up after trial having a sentence three times greater than he would have had in the initial instance. Um, and so the court said, look, we have no problem finding that that was ineffective assistance of counsel. But again, we get to this issue of remedy, right? Is specific performance the effective remedy or not? And the Laffler court really kind of hunted on this one, right? I mean, what they really basically said is it's up to the trial judge what to do, right? We're not going to tell the trial judge there are going to be reasons that specific performance would be appropriate and reasons that it's not. So we're going to always kick it back to the trial judge to make that call. Um, and so one of the things I did in this paper that is to kind of look and see what judges have done since 2012, right? What remedy are they doing? Are they, are they imposing specific performance or are they doing something else? Allowing a vacated conviction, resentence, that kind of thing. Um, and a fair number of courts, both state and federal, have been ordering specific performance of the initial plea. Um, so a few of them haven't been, but, but specific performance has become a remedy um, an equitable remedy that we see being used um, to, to address problems on both the prosecution and defense side with plea bargaining. Right. So, Courtney, I wonder if in closing you could reflect a little on, you know, based on your study of the use of equity in criminal courts, sort of how can and should criminal courts use equitable principles and equitable remedies uh, going forward? And sort of where do you see this project going next? So one of the key takeaways, I think, for me has been when I sat down to do this piece was realizing how many, even if you take the narrower view of equity um, as, as sort of conceptualized by um, the early U.S. courts and, and the later courts of chancery, there are a lot of available remedies, um, equitable remedies available in criminal cases that I think most people aren't aware of, most judges aren't aware of, most parties aren't aware of. And so one goal is just to, to put this on the radar screen, to make sure that parties and judges are aware of these options. Um, but I also think, and this is, I, I'm actually in, in the sort of middle stages of writing the next piece of this, which is, I think... You know, it's my sense that that equity provides an outlet to address some of the more pressing and concerning aspects of our criminal justice system. Um, and, and so I'm looking at the different ways in which courts might be able to use equity and parties might be able to argue equitable remedies um, to address some of the more sticky issues that, that legislatures are reluctant to address because um, they tend to 
they, they want to get reelected, right? People who are in office would like to get reelected and they don't want to seem soft on crime, for example. Um, and so I think sometimes the issues are better left to courts, um, but sometimes courts need a mechanism to be able to, to reach what they view as being the right result um, when there's not a readily available legal hook for them to be able to do that. And so I'm looking at what the parameters of that should be, because obviously I'm not trying to go out and say, oh, we should just give complete discretion back to every single judge, you know, to do whatever they want anytime they want based on their own conscience, because that's, I think, a little too unbounded uh, for most of us. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program today, Courtney. Thanks so much for having me. First, you know, when I went there, I, this lady, she was out there for the same thing I was, remember? That lady that got picked up for shoplifting. You know, when the judge gave her that, I was going to, you know, run out. We went downstairs, and I told my mother I was going to leave. You know, I wasn't going to face the judge. You know, because he gave her the same amount of time and everything. Six months and $300 fine. You know, I went downstairs, and I was talking to my mother until I was going to leave. She told me I might as well stay. She said I might as well stay and face it, because you know where I run, they're gonna get me. What was it like when you were actually sitting there? When you decided to sit and face it, how did you feel then? I just sat there. You know, I wouldn't. I couldn't think. You know, I was just too scared to think or anything. I didn't want to say nothing. I just let him throw it all on me. And then that's when I, you know, I finally told him that nobody gave me a chance. I just came out, I don't know, with, with no thought or nothing. But it helped me. Since he gave me a chance, now I take it and I'm going to prove right to him. <laughs>